Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is songwriter and producer Sam Hollander. But first of all, Spotify has released their list of billion stream songs. There are more than 300 songs, totaling more than 446 billion streams. That's almost half a trillion. So who has the most songs with the billion streams? Well, that would be Ed Sheeran with 11 songs of 1 billion plus. Post Malone and The Weeknd come in second with nine. Ariana Grande with seven. Maroon 5 with seven. Drake and Eminem with six. And Shawn Mendes, Bruno Mars, and Coldplay all with five. What song do you think has been streamed the most? Well, that's Shape of You by Ed Sheeran with around 3.3 billion streams. Now, this is just on Spotify alone. Blinding Lights by The Weeknd is a close second with 3.2. Dance Monkey Tones and Eyes 2.7. And Drake, One Dance 2.5. And there's a lot with 2 billion after that. Now, again, we're talking about billion with the B and only on Spotify. Now, if you think it's only newer songs that have garnered a billion, actually a lot of old rock songs have made it as well. Sweet Home Alabama, Hotel California, September by Earth, Wind and Fire, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, Bohemian Rhapsody, Billie Jean, Don't Stop Believing. There's a lot of them that have also hit a billion. But things seem to be slowing down a little bit because there's only been one song from 2022 that has hit the billion mark, and that's As It Was by Harry Styles. So it seems like if you're going to hit a billion, you're at the superstar level, which shouldn't be a surprise. But the fact of the matter is, there are more and more songs that are hitting that mark. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something interesting. What do you think the most dangerous audio software is? It's actually Avid Pro Tools. It was named the most dangerous to search for. 64% of search results result in malware. So these aren't people that are going to the Avid site to download it. No, these are people looking for cracked versions. As a result, you kind of expect this to happen, but 64%, nothing else even comes close. Pro Tools, of course, is the industry standard, but is it the most popular DAW? According to a combination of Google Trends, Forum Statistics, and Sales Numbers, the most popular DAW is actually FL Studio. Ableton Live comes in second. Logic Pro comes in third. Number four is Cubase. Number five is Pro Tools. And number six is Studio One. At this point, it really doesn't matter which DAW you choose because they're all really good and for the most part they're equally as powerful. It comes down to which one are you most comfortable with. That being said, the music industry 
and the film and television industry revolves around Pro Tools. So if you want to get work in that side of the industry, then you should at least know a little bit about it. Speaking of a billion streams, my guest this week has been streamed more than 7 billion times. It's songwriter Sam Hollander, who's written and produced for the likes of Panic at the Disco, One Direction, Katy Perry, Weezer, Def Leppard, Blink-182, Fits in the Tantrums, Train, Ringo Starr, Carol King, Tyga, The OJs, and many others. To date, he's achieved 22 U.S. Top 40 hits, as well as 10 number ones, 10 top fives, and 87 top 10 chart positions globally. In 2019, he held the number one position on the Billboard Rock Songwriters chart for nine weeks. Sam has written a book entitled 21 Hit Wonder, Flopping My Way to the Top of the Charts. It looks more to struggles, flops, and bad luck in the business before he made it than his many successes. During the interview, we spoke about sticking it out despite many years of failures, his collaboration technique, reading the body language of your co-writers, writing for different genres, his work in television, and much more. I spoke with Sam via Zoom from his home in upstate New York. I want to know how you got into the music business in the first place, and then we'll talk about your evolution from there. Well, I I think uh, I got got into the music business the way most moderate talents of a young age do where I was, uh, I was this tenacious little piece of gum that you stepped on, on the sidewalk and you tried to clean off your shoe, but no matter what my, the remnants of my, uh, my essence remained, I, uh, I clawed my way into this. I, you know, moved to the city at 18, I bounced around colleges and I, uh, I, I knew at a very young age, this is what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to write and produce, but I had no idea what that actually meant. I love the terms. And, you know, I came at it, you know, I'm, there, there are so many, uh, there are so many ways to infiltrate this industry as a creative. But for me, you know, I was a record nerd, you know, I was the consummate collector kid and, you know, I took copious notes of uh, the, you know, the Dick Clark countdowns and, you know, Casey Kasem. And, you know, uh, I, uh, I soaked in every mix show on, on the radio. And then, you know, I'd go and hang at newsstands and read billboards and read any fr- magazine that I could read for free. And I had a somewhat photographic memory and I'd memorize faces and names and just constantly just keep like this data bank in my head of, uh, of uh the the quote-unquote players in the game and if i could just ever get my songs to them and you know to the song started out um you know in uh i came of age in the in the golden era of early hip-hop and i was trying to do an alternative rap version of what i felt that was which is a little singing a little rapping and it was terrible but I got a record deal at 21. I dropped out of college, my third college at 21. I dropped out and I pursued it pretty uh, aggressively. And, you know, uh, there's this pivotal moment, Bobby, where I'm, uh, I'm walking through Washington Square Park in a haze and uh, I look around and it's a mob scene and it's the college graduation that would have been my graduating class if I hadn't dropped out. And at the, this point, 
I had been signed. I had been, you know, my record came out. I sold five copies. I was dropped and I had to figure it out. And so I spent my twenties clawing, learning how to um, first program. And then, you know, um, that, that evolved into a uh, production and, you know, at the same time, really that my, my sole focus was truly on the, on the writing and my primary focus. And it was developing my writing skills and just constantly study, study, study craft, you know, that's how I got into it. Okay. So you were an artist first. And then when did you have the revelation that maybe I don't want to do that. I would rather just write. I think it was the show Bobby, where I uh, was on stage and there were three guys who were trying to throw champagne bottles at my head. It was a lot like the blues brothers scene, but I, uh, with the chicken wire, but I, uh, I knew I didn't belong on a stage. It wasn't my skill set. I, I am not a natural performer per se. I always felt that, uh, you know, I was always drawn to screenwriters and I was drawn to songwriters. I was drawn to the people who, you know, crafted the narrative. So I, I became an artist out of, out of default because I had no idea how one would actually permeate the music industry as a songwriter. You know, there, 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 there was no internet and yeah, there were books, but you know, as you know, in the late eighties and early nineties, there weren't a, a lot of sort of um, pivotal reads for aspiring songwriters by songwriters that weren't just manuals and instructuals, you know, this was, you know, to, to learn about the nuts and bolts and the dirt of it that, that didn't really exist for, at least for me. So I, I figured my quickest path of entry was to be an artist because I felt, well, look, if I got a record deal, I'm at least going to get in the building, understand what records are being made, understand how the business works and go from there. And that's why I did it. And it worked. I did everything right, but my record was so unsuccessful that I didn't have a lot of time in the building. So I didn't really get to learn the in and outs and the nuances until much later. You said that, and from what I've read, you're far from an overnight sensation in that so many people, they, they make it early in their 20s or even late in their 20s. It took you quite a bit longer until you, you finally gained some success, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I came up with a lot of folks um, during that era in downtown New York who had success young. You know, I would hang out at um, the coffee shop after hours at it, you know, 1920. And I watched Maxwell get discovered as a busboy showcasing at Nell's. And then suddenly he's on Columbia records. Three years later, he's a superstar. You know, there were all these stories. I watched blues traveler and spin doctors play at Nightingale's in front of, you know, the most minimal crowds to becoming, you know, these, these icons of the era. And um, that, that obviously fueled me, but the flip side was I didn't, uh, I just didn't, I just didn't, nail it. And it's, you know, and then I wrote this book for that reason, to be honest with you, I, uh, success is neat and it's really great. And it's fun to look back now on these things. You're like, Hey, you know, I've been fortunate, but the flip side is the, uh, I think this industry, um, people take tremendous pride in burying the dead, <laughs> you know? So we all, we all gloss over, all this stuff. And, you know, we put on new veneers musically and as if they never existed. And I wanted to make a, uh, I wanted to write a book where I really delved into warts and all, where I really stepped into all the, just every 
uh, uh, gruesome outcome of projects that I touched. And, you know, my 20s up to the age of 34, I was, as I referred to it, I was musical Ebola. Like I was a virus. Like if you came near me, your project was doomed. And I get asked a lot, you know, over the years, I get, a, you know, how did you stick it out? How did you stick it out? How did you have the uh, fortitude? Truthfully, I didn't have a plan B. You know, I dropped out of school. I didn't envision myself going back to college in my 30s. And also, I really do believe I had like a defined vision. And it was really like, it was really, um, I could feel it sort of actualizing. But, and even though these, my projects constantly got shelved or for this reason or that reason, I really felt like I was onto something and maybe history would work with me. Like maybe I just needed the world, the universe to either catch up. I was either ahead or behind, but hopefully the tectonic plates would eventually just sort of, you know, align in my favor. And that's sort of what happened, you know? You know, one of the things I've noticed is that all the people that I came up with, none are superstars, but we've all now have successful careers in one aspect or another of the music business. And it was all due to being tenacious and just sticking it out through the years, through the good and the bad. It's a game of attrition to some extent, but it, you know, the truth of the matter is I, I think tenacity is king. And I, I was such an underachiever as a kid academically, athletically, and everything I did, I was just sort of, I just, I was just sort of an also ran to some extent. And when music grabbed a hold of my cranium and my psyche, I just, it, 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 it enveloped me. And at that moment, I knew that there was nothing else. There's nothing else that ever spoke to me like this, you know, let me move this thing. Sorry. Um, and when that happened, I found that, you know, I could, I could, uh, I could validate the tenacious aspects of it. You know what I mean? Like I could always wake up in the morning and even on a terrible day where I didn't know if there was, <laughs> I had absolutely no, no ability to game the outcome whatsoever. I still was going to go 200 miles an hour. And I realized, look, you know, when I started out, I wasn't the most talented in the room and I certainly wasn't the most national, nat naturally gifted. So I had to work uh, work everybody I knew, you know, I, it's always like, uh, I always say it's like Jeff Probst on survivor. I didn't want my torch extinguished and no matter what I was going to outwit outlast out hustle, you know, you know, I really worked and I put the, uh, you know, I just constantly just got better and better just through process and learning and just wanting it more. And I feel like you're right. It's like the people I came up with who are still in it, they wanted it more. Yeah. It's just the truth. During this period, this fallow period, were you writing by yourself or were you collaborating by this time? Oh, you know, when I was, uh, when I started out, I, I attempted to do a lot of things on my own and you can hear it in the art. You can hear it in the, in the, in the mediocrity of my output. I realized, um, I realized in my mid to late twenties that I was best served as a collaborator. I felt that, you know, I was lyrical and I was melodic, but I really, uh, quarterly, that was fine. I can play a little kumbaya on the acoustic, but I really felt like I needed, I wanted, um, Randy Newman chords and I wanted Baccarat chords and I wanted, you know, I just, I, I wanted more than three chord rock. I wanted to work with people who really understood incredible voicings and things like that. And that's how each of my partnerships along the way began. And, you know, with artists, I, I, I'm drawn to the notion that I can, um, I can help them write, you know, the sequel to whatever they've been doing, uh, you know, 
doesn't matter if they're, you know, if it's Ringo or if it's, you know, a 18 year old kid who's just starting out who might have one song that's raised its hand and the, the greedy beasts at the label interview at the labels intervene and they say, Oh, go right with that guy. doesn't matter. I'm going to approach it uh, like a colossal fan. I will have done so much due diligence on the artist I'm working with. And I come in with a lot of ideas and a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, because I, I know where I want the movie to go from here. I was just going to ask you about your collaboration technique, because for many people, it's not easy to collaborate. But it, you just mentioned it. You said it was in, all in the preparation. It's And it's shape-shifting, right? Yeah. It's like you, you, you have to be completely adept. You have to be... Um, the role, the role is amazing. There are days that I do incredible amounts of heavy lifting in a session that I can't believe that I'm with somebody who, you know, just for that day, they might, they just didn't hear it. They didn't have anything. And I'm the therapist. I am the cheerleader and I'm really carrying it on one end. On the other end, there's days where my role is to sit back and get out of the way and chime in when necessary to hear what I hear but to let the art come naturally and not to suppress it. It just, it really depends on the personality and you have to, there are a lot of personality templates. You sort of, you begin to see the same characters appear every decade, you know, each decade, it's sort of someone will walk in the room and I can think, Oh, that reminds me of this person from 14 years ago, et cetera. But you sort of similar personalities will appear, but the reality is you, you just have to um, flexibility. It's, it's preparation and flexibility because you know, this is speed dating, you know, we're being thrust into this awkward arrangement. And at this point, the bulk of the artists I work with are probably pretty uh, excited to be with me as I'm excited to be with them. I'd like to thank, you know, but there, remember there are many years where artists literally was like pulling teeth to get them to work with me. So they're coming in post root canal from the label and they're sort of holding their mouths. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be sitting with me. I've done nothing that they know. And when you've done nothing, that an artist can latch onto and say, oh, I know you did that thing that I dug. They're going to give you nothing. And it's so hard. And I learned just through years of futility how to navigate situations where, you know, maybe the person isn't excited to be there that day. Well, how am I going to get the best out of them? How do I know when to call it if there's absolutely no possibility of the outcome <laughs> connecting how i've mastered the art of ending a session pretty early because i know all right there's, there's no way that this dynamic is going to work you know and it's 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 flexibility is key it's flexibility and it's preparation okay so if you're going to end a, a session is there a typical personality where you just don't connect yeah, there, there is, there's a certain, I write about this in the book. I mentioned a, a singer I worked with once who, uh, who pulled this maneuver and I don't blame him because I've actually, there were other examples of it too, but it's reading body language. And, you know, I had an artist come in and he said he wanted to, you know, I, I knew him as a pop artist who had had success as a very straight up the middle pop artist, which normally wasn't what I wanted to do. But, you know, he, he had a thing that I dug and I was into it. He came in and he wanted to write a grungy ballad and he looked different from his photos and he was obviously going through some sort of metaphor metamorphosis. And 
But when he sat down, there was a hunched up thing. Mm. So it's sort of like what I'm doing here to avoid the brutal cold that's hitting the back of my neck. But he was uh, he was hunched over and he had his acoustic and turned away from me. Mm. That sign. Yeah. And he's turned away and he's sort of shedding an idea. And right then and there, you know, that's one of these moments where you give it five minutes and in five minutes, if I can tell that there's no interaction and when I'm throwing ideas and I start scatting and nothing is landing, like it's not being acknowledged, 0% probability of landing that one. So those are the ones you just have to know when to say when it, it is no indictment on both uh, either his talents or mine. It's just, there's certain things don't work. You know, I talk about Mraz in the book, Jason Mraz. I'm a massive Mraz fan and I've been with Jason three or four times and whiffed every time. And it just, it's just, sometimes it's not meant to be, you know, yeah. and you just have to know. And we, and you know, and it's just, the energy isn't right. You know, one of the things that's really interesting that I find interesting, Sam, is the fact that you can cross genres. That's the most exciting part of the, um, sorry, part of the art for me because I was a KTL kid and I grew up, that was really my introduction to music, right? It's like, you know, there were Beatles records. My mom was really into Blossom Deary. We had a lot of Blossom Deary. And my brother had Talking Heads records and some really cool stuff. So I was exposed to all this stuff. But for me, the thing that lit the match were these KTEL records because they were multi-genre. So you could have, you know, uh, the Marshall Tucker Band and Donna Summer and, you know, the Raspberries on a compilation, David Essex, right? And that's how I hear music. So I'm not genre specific. So I know how to write in most genres because I don't, I don't see the walls to me. It's like, I've studied each of the forms and I'm a fan of the forms. So I can get in a session and I can write something that's very intimate and singer songwriter. And I sort of understand how to um, acquiesce that thing. And then there's other sessions that are rock and heavy. I can do that. And I also understood for a long time, I at least understood sort of, the tent poles of hip hop, you know, it's moved a little bit. I'm probably aged out of it at this point, but there was a while where I understood or I could at least sit in the room with an MC and understand sort of how to get something across the line. And there's other genres, house music, disco, funk, like I get all of it, you know? And so that helps because it, 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 it music is so much more exciting to me if I can work broad, you know, if it, uh, I never wanted to be pigeonholed, you know, I saw so many, as a student of this, I saw so many incredible producers through the years who were um, married to one moment in one, you know, genre in one moment in time, had a very hard time breaking out of that. I never wanted to get, um, I never wanted to be synonymous with one era. And, you know, and that's why every year that I'm still in it, it's the most magical feeling because I just, you know, I, I, I drift through genres and I feel like that isn't lost on people. And hopefully that's why the phone still rings. Well, not only that, you can cross generations as well. I mean, you talked about aging out, and that happens to so many in the business where, as you say, they're kind of stuck in what they're doing, and eventually the rest of the world isn't doing that anymore. But you seem to be able to relate across age groups. Well, because, well, A, I think I have so, um, um, so much reverence and so much... Um, appreciation for the legends, the ones who came before me, the real, the real, the real craft writers, you know? So what I always try to do is every year I try to intersperse writing with icon icons of 
the eras before me with writing with kids from now. And it's akin to like a, an actor who does a blockbuster film and then does four indies after because, you know, he's made the money from the one to, to afford the, the other. And that's what brings me the most excitement. It's like, you know, if I can sit with, you know, Carol King or Ringo or whatever, Mike Love or the OJs, Tom Jones, any of these people, and then, and the writers too, you know, the heavyweights and, sit with, with, uh, I mean, Paul Williams, I mean, Paul Williams is my guy, you know, and he mentored me along the way. It's the most incredible feeling. I take that knowledge and I bring that into a young session. I bring that into a kid and there are tricks that both sessions bring into the other. And I think if I've taken, I, I think if there's anything I look back on the last 20 years, that's been the most exciting is I kind of feel like I'm a conduit between generations and a lot of young artists don't, have the frame of reference. I think music's changed in terms of, I work with a lot of young artists whose frame of reference is probably a little more narrow now because there, you know, there's, there's obviously such, you know, there's such exciting, um, there's such excitement if you're a kid and you're on TikTok and there's 10,000 other, you know, kids doing the same thing. It's a movement, right? So they're so heavily invested in that. Plus they're, 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 they're really uh, old songs get unearthed on TikTok and suddenly become moments, you know, and, that's great. And they're usually sort of obscure records. It's kind of great, you know, but I don't, I haven't really met a ton of kids under the age of 30 who, you know, study Dennis Lambert and study Barry and Cynthia and study Jeff Barry and, you know, Ellie Greenwich and all these writers. Like there, there's so many writers through history. I'm just a nerd, man. I find, I find the the heavyweights from who came before me, they're my idols, man. They're, they're, they're the reason I, I do this. So I want to work with as many as I can and then take that wisdom and bring it to the kids. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but let's go to one place here. The songwriting has changed, and especially now, where, for instance, uh, pop songs, there's no intros, there's no outros. Bridges sometimes are just a, a modified chorus or a modified a verse. It's true. So how does that affect you as a writer since it's, it's different than it was when you started out? I'm a traditionalist at, the, at heart. So I still walk into the room believing that there's room for a bridge. And <laughs> there's, there's room for an intro and there's room for a post-chorus. I'm a big post-chorus guy. And, you know, these things go in and out of fashion, obviously. And, you know, but it's funny. The last couple of sessions I was in up till yesterday, the bridge was, you know, wasn't even discussed, right? It's just never going to happen. It was, it was uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, drop, musical, what they call the drop. Yep. And then uh, a drop chorus, a drop into the drop chorus outro, which is a little strange. I worked with a kid yesterday and, you know, we glossed through the second chorus and I thought, all right, we're done. We're good. This is great. You know, and he said, what about the bridge, man? This kid was 19. He's like, no, he's like, I'm really into bridges. Wow. You never know. Right. It's like, it just, I think it has changed a lot. You know, the immediacy is a factor more than ever before. Right. So it, it, uh, these are 15 second jingles, you know, it's like, I feel like these are like less filling taste great sort of seventies, you know, when you say Budweiser, you said it all, that's what we're doing. Right. It's like, you have to get them within the first 15 seconds. So whatever, whatever you can, you know, a chorus at the top will do that. If you do a down chorus at the top or something, maybe that's the trick. 
so I think a lot of kids are looking for um, something that's so instant that grabs. So the the dial is not the proverbial dial is not flipped. I guess that's been around. I mean, the days of the the Emerson Lake and Palmer album are probably you know Carnival number nine probably wouldn't work at radio this week, yeah. but. Everything else, like uh, I would say in general, it's not that it's songwriting has evolved and continues to evolve. But every time I believe that it's taken a firm turn, there will be a record that disproves it and goes completely and, and comes from a completely traditional place. Now, that being said, the way songs are written, part two here is the fact that you used to do demo once upon a time and you'd sit with the guitar, with the keyboard, whatever you know it is, and, and you'd not only the song form, but you would create it traditionally. And now there is none of that, at least in the pop genre, where you're creating the production right there and it's based on loops. So there's only so far you can go. Say something funny. At the end of the day, it's also though how I became a producer technically in terms of, you know, uh, in the mid 2000s, I felt the stakes began to get greater for singles right the, the pressure was began i think i felt like the writing was it, it pre uh post napster but in that itunes era where the single started to become a thing more and more with the single of the week etc so what happened was at least for me demos where i used to believe that a sparse demo could sell a song through demos started to get steroided you know what i mean yeah. it was like it was <laughs> It was, it was like, you know, one of these baseball players, it was like, they're all juiced up. And so I, I took that very seriously. So I went really deep on demos and I was working with Dave Katz at the time because my logo and our demos were these bombastic big things that we really put a ton of time into. And what happened was they started to get released as masters because yeah. labels would say, Oh, like we can't beat the demo. The demo's got a vibe that's how I started getting productions on records really like, because it was just demos that made the cut. And now more than ever, that demo, that 2 AM, those five kids in a bedroom making some goofy little novelty song that's going online that night. Yeah. That whatever they record that night is coming out. So it's just so different and yes, it's limiting. And look, I, you know, I love what Splice brought to the industry because it's exciting. I, cause I, you know, I grew up obviously chopping up samples and all these things. And then, you know, to have these libraries is, is, are, is incredible. But the flip side is it can also be limiting, you know, working from like these stock loops that have these, you know, you, sometimes you have kids who don't know where to go beyond the loops, yeah. you know? And so I, I'm always a big fan of a writer who loves Splice and those technologies a big fan, but also is so adept at theory that they can use it, intersperse it, but also really do other stuff with it to make it really exciting and, and sort of take it to a new place. It hasn't been like this in a really long time, but I can remember when I was first starting, publishers would say, just give me guitar, keyboard, and vocal. I can hear through it. I can hear the rest. Not in my experience. I never bought into that. Yeah, it's like, uh, no, that's, that's I, bullshit. You know, I don't trust it, I, you know. I don't trust the suits, man. You know, <laughs> I've never, to be honest with you, except maybe once or twice in my entire run, uh, there were a couple of uh, there were a couple of acoustic demos that made that you know that that I felt sold through acoustic songs. But 
anything that had any bombast to it no one ever bought the acoustic demo as far as i was concerned those are all the songs that just died on the vine yeah i figured that out pretty early on myself i'm cynical so <laughs> i just felt that that was a way to to just validate rejection you know sam tell me about your exploits in uh, television <laughs> there it's been a fascinating journey i uh i love the medium i love tv i love film you know i'm a nerd so you know i got to los angeles i got out there i i had been there a few months and i just moved to la and of course i i get seduced with a gig of doing smash in new york so i move <laughs> i just moved out to la and the gigs in new york so i was flying back and forth um but my parents were both sick at the time and it gave me an ability to spend time with them it was awesome but TV is so hit or miss. I, I did a show last year called Ordinary Joe on NBC. Yeah. And it did, you know, prime, you know, prime time, big rollout, and it just didn't connect. And I worked with some of the nicest people I'd ever worked with. The process was wonderful. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Like I, I was working with such inspirational, kind, sweet people, and they trusted my vision musically and I was writing, producing the show, the the songs on the on the show, um, with my with my buddy Josh Edmondson who works with me, and uh, we had such a blast, and it was magical. But of course, the show gets canceled immediately. Then I did Smash, but previously Smash was brutal. I uh, I I it was it was it was everything I didn't want in <laughs> terms of there were just so many cooks in the kitchen. And that's what can happen with TV. I, I still believe in the music industry in most situations. Now, I mean, now more than ever, because kids kind of control, obviously the gatekeepers have, you know, uh, the gates have been blown open, right? They're, the gatekeeper is not what it was in terms of kids have the power now, you know, with TikTok and everything else. If the, everything's a bidding war and they're getting reversions after seven years and all these, the deals are so artist friendly. But in music, historically, at least, you know, you would you would deliver a record and there was an A&R person and they would give you notes. And if it if they brought in A&R by committee, it was rare. It happened. Some labels have, you know, a sort of a uh, someone at the top of the zeitgeist sort of figure who who has it makes creative calls as well. But that's it. TV on Smash. Uh, there could be notes from 15 different people, you know, and none of which align. They're all over the place, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I worked with a music supervisor named Jen Ross, who I also worked with an ordinary Joe, who is fantastic. And one of the things she promised me from day one on Smash is that she would buffer me from the riffraff. And it was incredible what she did because, you know, man, you have Steven Spielberg at the top of the chain and you have all these other people who are incredible, iconic figures. And They've certainly earned the right to give notes, but then, you know, there's all these other forces who are giving notes. There's studio people beneath them and all these other people and everybody just wants to get a word. And, and I was miserable. I really, that, that was one of the tougher experiences I've had just in terms of it didn't play to my skill sets. You know, I kind of thought I was going to be writing because I'm a songwriter so I got hired for the gig and I thought writing would be part of it, but I ended up just producing. So I produced like 35 songs and 
it was chaos and I got it done, but I just, I, I came out of that picking. I'm never going to do TV again. And then I just did ordinary Joe and it was magical. So now I don't know what to think anymore, but it really just comes down to the team, the showrunners. at the end of the day, if the showrunners have a clear, distinct vision and they're given the, and they're given the runway to, to, to chase it, then it's awesome. It's a great, it TV's the best when you have that, but I don't know, man, the stakes are higher. There's more money. And at the end of the day, when things have more money, there's also just more voices. Boy, we can have a long conversation just on on this <laughs> because I have some experiences that are kind of the same. I live in Burbank. I'm talking to you from I, Burbank right I, now. I've, I've heard of it, yes. Yes, I'm yes. sure. So basically, I, I'm one block away from Warner Ranch. I was going to say you're a stone's throw from the ranch. Okay, great. Yeah, Got yeah. It. yeah. Look, I, I love the cons. I would, TV is just this romantic notion. You know, I go to the lots, you know, when I'm out there and I go to CVS, you know, we lived there for 10 years. We just moved back East, but for the 10 years that I was out there, you know, I did fireworks on the CBS lot one night, you know, the yeah, one, yeah. you know, in studio city and you know, I'm walking around Gilligan's Island place and all these other things. I, you know, man, I geek out on this stuff. It, 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 it's like, um, it's, 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 it's this fantasy that suddenly is just sort of, developed into something real in front of your eyes but the t- reality is it's not that easy it's yeah. a job and it's tough yeah. Yeah. yeah what's the hardest thing that you have to do in doing your everyday job as a writer be on tv yeah be on tv yeah <laughs> just as, as a you know writing music in this day and age it's we're picking stocks right because there's so much music out there and there's so many potential acts to work with because the landscape is full with a hundred thousand songs being uploaded a day. So you're picking stocks. You're, I'm just, it's gambling on sessions that for the most part will evolve into nothing, but it's finding it's, it's picking that artist and getting on something early and uh, it's identifying it and it's getting in with it early and building together but getting the right one. And unfortunately now more than ever, you can't game the system anymore. There's no gaming radio, all these things that labels did sort of have changed. Radio doesn't have the same pull that it did at least in, in the, in the, in the youth size. And it's hard because, you know, I, I think it was left sits or one. Oh no, it was an article in billboard is what is a hit? It was an article in billboard and the left sets wrote about it. What is a hit, right? What, how do we define success right now? You know, I have songs, you know, with artists who would struggle to sell out a very, very, very tiny little venue, maybe a coffee shop, but they might have 500,000 streams on the song. I have a song with Def Leppard and they play it in stadiums and it has a million streams. How do we, what is success? Well, how do we judge any of it? So when you take all that into account, you have to choose so wisely in terms of sessions and path and, you know, and for me, that's a tough one. So it's really like, it's, I, I, I overthink everything at this point because I, 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 I unfortunately need kids who are on their way up at the right time, who are, where they're still malleable to some extent where they want to actually, would they want my input as opposed to hitting that success rate where they have no interest in what I say, you know, and it's, uh, it's trippy. It's like, it, it's, it messes with your head. So 
some days I choose correctly, but you know, any days you don't, any days you, I'll grab something that I'm so excited about. And then I'll look at the Spotify and it's got the little arrow next to it for yeah. under a thousand plays. Yeah, yeah. And I know that, you know, uh, at these big behemoth record labels, they will laugh me out of the building with that. Even if I have a kid who is the next Bruno Mars, I'm not so sure that I'll be able to sell it through if the numbers aren't there already, you know, yeah. it's crazy. Give me an overview of your book. Well, I think this book, you know, it was birthed out of a sort of a sad story in terms of, you know, my parents passed back to back. I inherited my dad's laptop. And as I was going through it, I found these notes from this, this lost book that he had started when I was seven years old. He announced that he was writing a book and I found all these notes that had been scanned in shorthand and just, you know, just to me, it was gibberish. I didn't understand a word of it because it was so analytical and my dad was a genius and it read like a genius's notes that were just completely sort of, um, you know, lost in space. And I was trying to, I, it, it crushed me that he was this brilliant man and there, there's a part of his life that wouldn't, um, w- uh, wouldn't, there would be no keepsake of it. And so as I thought about that, I thought about my own life to date. And at that point, you know, I'd been doing this a long time and I'd had quite a journey. Um, and what I realized about my journey was it was so, um, it was mired in futility and failure and black clouds for 15 years. And suddenly it flipped on a dime. And then for the next 15, it's been pretty magical. And I thought the interesting book isn't the success. It's like, you know, I don't really get psyched when people spike a football in the end zone and do a dance. I like all the stuff that leads up to it. I like all the tactical stuff that gets you down to the goal line and all the, you know, coming back from the sack and then getting back up. And I was sacked for 15 years straight. So I wanted to write about that because like I said, the industry buries the dead. You know, it's so easy. I'll read interviews with heavyweights in this business and it's celebrating the successes, the successes, the successes, but nobody really talks about the failures. You know, we try to just scrub them under the rug. So I wanted to take that approach because I made a lot of records that I was super proud of that just the outcomes were terrible. And it's not about blaming record labels or anybody involved most of it comes back to me. Most of it comes back to my writing, my production, my navigation. What, and, and I try to pinpoint the mistake, why things didn't work, my role when I was obviously um, the one who der- helped derail it, but also what I learned from it. And the most important thing, I say this all the time, I never repeated mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, So I might have made a lot of them, but I didn't repeat them. And as time went on, you know, I think I pretty much, you know, I, I, I cocked over all the, the holes in the wall and in my, you know, and I, I began to really understand how to do this, but I really, I thought it was imperative to write that book for those people out there who are creatives of any age. It doesn't matter if your kid's starting out in this or, you know, you're 70 and you've decided you, you've always wanted to write songs and wanted to experience and wanted to create art. So I write that book that says, you know, you can do it. And, you know, you're going to have all these voices you tell you can't, you know, your family, your friends, there's a, the world is full of people who will doubt you. 
And all you need is a couple of positive reinforcements that say you can, and I hope to be one of them. That's why I wrote the book. What was the project that flipped it for you? <sighs> the project that probably flipped it originally was a band called the Gym Class Heroes. You know, I took this project. Um, I had at this point done, I believe, seven or eight major label records, of which only one or two had been released. The other six were shelved. And this is writing and producing the entire album. Mm. So back in, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s, you can imagine how much time we used to spend on albums, right? Yep. Three, three months a clip, four months, and getting shelved because there was no interweb. So there was no Spotify. They did not, you know, we didn't just put music up. If your record, it was like TV pilots. If you're... Uh, if your um, if your pilot didn't go, let's say they ordered the network ordered thirty pilots, three go to network, five go to pilot, the rest just die in the vine, right? Well, that's what everything I touched were one of those records that died in the vine, and I have to say, up to that point, I had made all these major label records and I was getting major label budgets because I think people wanted to see me win. I really believe that. This industry has been incredible to me on so many levels. But the number one thing is there were a lot of people who believed in me even when I had nothing. You know, there are a lot of people who took my calls when I had nothing. And what was funny about it was uh, the gym class heroes came from Jonathan Daniel, Crush Management, and who uh, I'm, I'm with Crush Management now, but they, uh, you know, it's the greatest management company. They're incredible. And they, they had identified this band and thought maybe I'd be a good fit for it. And you know, the budget on the record was, I don't know, I believe it was $29,000. All in, including mixing, mastering, and everything. Now, up to that point, I was getting whatever, 15 grand a track, 12 grand a track, having never done anything in my career that anyone had heard, I was getting this money. So something I'm doing this album is 10 songs for 28 grand with everything attached. And I took this thing on and my manager at the time, I got to say, it was probably thought I, I was literally on a crack binge or something. Cause this was such a crazy idea, but I took it on. And uh, my wife was due to give birth that week. She, she, she had the kid on a Thursday, our daughter. And four days later, suddenly I was making an album for 29,000. And I started on my own. I brought in Dave Katz. I had to keep it chokehold on my own. And the Dave Katz came in. And we made this thing and I put everything into it because I felt like it was my last shot in this industry. I had spent the previous year doing drum programming on kids bop records and editing uh, ringtones for jam bands. So jam bands would send me a 30 minute song with 200 bars of solo. And I would have to whittle it down to like a little 15 second interstitial bit. Oh. That's how I spent my 34th year on the planet trying to um, rationalize this to myself that I still, uh, it was worth sticking out, you know? Mm. And I made this Jim Class Heroes record and then Cupid's Joe Cold hit number one. And Queen and I did well and uh, Close Off as a hit. We had a bunch of hits and it's a gold album. And, um, at the exact same time, I always, um, I always knew that if I could just get one through the gate, that I could do a hundred because I felt that I just, I'd spent so much time, uh, like every band, young bands, 
if their first record hits, as we know, the follow-up's the toughest thing they'll ever do, right? Because they've worked their whole lives for this record. And then to write the first record, the second record, they have three months on tour and that's it. And that's why most bands don't succeed. It's like you have one big classic record and then number two is a flop and it's over. And I knew that and I was very aware of it. And I'd seen it with friends. So I wanted to stay a hundred steps ahead. And I felt like I had songs ready. I had bands I wanted to create. I had lanes and ideas of where, where I could strike. And all of it was based on getting one through. So that was the one. And from there it was, I felt like it was really on. Very cool. Thanks man. Last question. What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? As a writer, it was, as a collaborator, it was what Nile Rogers said. It was, you know, always approach it as a super fan and come in the room as a super fan and direct the movie of what the movie you would, the movie that you'd want to see with the artist. Like really you're the director, you're the screenwriter and write that as a fan, come from a fan perspective and think, what well, what would I want? Because if you believe that passionately enough, you can probably will it through and you can sell that passion. As a, um, as a creative, I would say, you know, Phil Galston told me that um, Phil Galston wrote Save the Best for Last at 42 years old. It was his first hit. He was 42. And I found that very inspiring because the truth of the matter is there is no shelf life. There is no timeline. We live in such a weird world of ageism, especially in music, because music has to reflect rock and roll. And we do believe rock and roll is youth culture. And we buy, buy into that ethos from books from day one, it's kids, whatever. And I love that. But, you know, the truth is I'm still a kid. I mean, look at me. I, I have been this guy in a hoodie, and a baseball hat since I was 13. And I'm still this guy. I'm, you know, I'm stunted. So stay young, stay relevant and just make great art and don't don't suppress negative voices because the truth can be told. I've seen so many great talents along the way pack it in because their support network wasn't there. They just didn't have the infrastructure around them of people telling them that they could go the distance. I had incredible people along the way who took an interest in me and uh, bought into my vision. And because of that, uh, I was able to, you know, follow, you know, chase my dreams. And I think it's so important. It doesn't matter who you are. Just like if, you know, find people who believe in you, believe in yourself, and then just go. You're unstoppable. You can find out more about Sam at samhollandersongs.com. That's Sam, S-A-M, Hollander, H-O-L-L-A-N-D-E-R, songs, all one word, dot com. And you can find his book wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.